Well, again, welcome to Cornerstone Church. It is a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to have you visitors here this morning. And we trust that God's word will be a blessing to you this morning, that you'll be encouraged and, of course, pointed to the truth of the gospel. We're going to be in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 16, but it's going to be a bit before we get there. But we will get to the text. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the truth of the gospel. God, thank you that the death of Christ, your son, is sufficient. It is efficacious for our sins, for the sins of all who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. God, may we never attempt to add to what you've done. But God, may we through faith trust in your son and him alone and his work on Calvary's cross that we would be saved. And Lord, we look forward to that hope, that complete salvation that you promised, even the redemption of the body. And Lord, it will be a glorious time when our salvation will be completed and we will be with you forever and be able to worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, even as we do now, but without any vestiges of sin left, nothing remaining that would hinder our worship. So God, this morning, may we worship you through your word now, and may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, it will be a bit before we get to Galatians 2 and verse 11. So just listen. In the beginning, the triune God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And the Bible says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. You see, God created Adam from the dust of the earth. And then God created Eve from Adam's side. He created Eve to be Adam's suitable helper. And remember what Adam said? This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. Not like the animals that had been brought to Adam, but this one was from his own side. This one was made as a suitable helper. And God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to worship and serve him. Think of their state created in the likeness of the glorious and perfect creator. Therefore, they had an intimate and perfect relationship with God. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. There was no enmity, no fear, no separation, no judgment. And Adam and Eve also had an intimate and perfect communion with one another. The husband was always right. Well, that's not really the point here. No, the husband loved his wife with divine love without any authoritarianism. And the wife arranged herself under her husband's God-given headship without the desire or 
The word is craving in the Hebrew there to dominate him. So in the garden, God provided everything they needed. It was literally a paradise. The word Eden means pleasure. There was no work, no labor, no curse, no pain, no sickness, no mourning, no tears, no death. It was a God-planted paradise. No wonder it's named the Garden of Pleasure. But then sin entered the human race. We know it well. We're living with the very consequences of it today. Although God had clearly warned them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Eve was tempted and and deceived by the serpent, she ate and gave to her husband and he ate also. And their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. They were ashamed. You see, things had changed They knew that their relationship with God had changed. So what did they do? They tried to make themselves acceptable before God. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, loincloths. And this was the first act of man-made religion in human history. Man trying to make himself acceptable before a holy God rather than look to God their provider and sustainer. They tried to cover their shame by their own efforts. They tried to make themselves acceptable to the one who is holy. But they were just as bare before God as if they stood there wearing nothing. And it, it appears they seem to know this. For when they heard the sound of him walking in the garden, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Yes, something had changed. They had sinned. They had entered into judgment, and they now feared the God who made them. This one whom to this point they had had a perfect relationship. And so God cursed the serpent. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. God cursed the woman that she would have pain in childbirth and her desire again, her craving would be against her husband now, but that he would rule over her. But the word there means with authoritarianism, that's the result of the fall. God cursed the ground for man's sake that it would bring forth thorns and thistles. Man would now eat bread by the sweat of his brow. But God cursed all mankind in general, that all men would return to the ground from which he was taken. For you are dust, God said, and to dust you shall return. God had clearly warned them. God had clearly said in the day that you eat this fruit, and remember the Hebrew there, dying you shall die or dying die. The idea is dying, you shall die. So they were now spiritually dead to God, and this would bring about in time their physical death. But in the midst of the curse, God cursed the serpent, even Satan himself. And here was the curse that the seed of the woman would crush his head. We see this promise 
deliverer pictured in the provision that God made for Adam and Eve. For the Lord God made them garments of skin and clothed them. The very creator himself, who is perfectly just and holy, is also love and mercy and grace. For he shed the blood of innocent animals and made tunics of skin for Adam and Eve. And it was a sufficient covering, unlike the covering they had made. Because it was of a blood sacrifice. We know it well, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God saved the first man and woman. It was all of his doing. It was his way. It was according to his divine character. Although they were, they were worthy of eternal judgment, they received the grace of God. They did not deserve it. They did nothing to earn it. It was all of grace. Then Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's first two sons, both understood that God required sacrifice. They understood that God required a blood sacrifice. Abel believed God and he offered that blood sacrifice that God required. But Cain did not believe God. He believed in God, but he did not believe God. And he brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground. It was from his own labor, his own efforts. It was from the sweat of his brow. So God looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but he had no regard for Cain and his offering. Cain's man-made sacrifice is the second example of man-made religion. Man trying to appease God by his own efforts, trying to come to God his own ways. The shedding of blood of animals was God's means for the covering of sin. It was, however, only a temporary atonement. It was a picture of a blood sacrifice yet to come that would once and for all take away sin. For again, God had promised a coming one, a deliverer, a rescuer, the Messiah himself that would crush the head of the serpent and bring eternal salvation to sinful man. And even under the Mosaic law, when the head of the household was to offer a sin offering, many trusted in their own efforts, their own offerings, rather than trusting the God to whom they were offering a sacrifice, rather than trusting the coming Messiah who would once and for all take away sin. And this has been the story throughout human history, man trying to appease God by his efforts, man attempting to earn God's favor, to make himself right before God, to atone for his sins to cover his shame. But folks, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. He is the horn, the strength of salvation. Salvation is found in his promised son who has now crushed and is crushing the head of the, of the deceiver. He is the promised Messiah, the eternal son of God, Yahweh in human flesh, the God man. He is the propitiation for our sins. He paid the sin debt, the promised one who has satisfied God's requirement for sins payment. 
He was and is without sin. He died as the believer's substitute. He shed his own blood, his precious blood. He rose from the dead victorious. He ascended to the Father and took with him his captives, those who he he had redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and there he intercedes for the saints. You see, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must must be saved. Think of it. He is the Savior of the world. Muhammad cannot save you. Confucius cannot save you. Buddha cannot save you. Joseph Smith cannot save you. Mary Baker Eddy cannot save you. They could not even atone for their own sins, much less anyone else's. So they have all died and they remain in the grave to this very day. But the Lord of glory, he died and he rose victorious and he is alive today making intercession for the saints. This means that apart from Christ, we have no hope, but that in Christ and in Christ alone through faith, we have the hope of eternal glory. Through him, we are saved and brought into a relationship with God. Through him, we are forgiven of our sins. So stop trying to appease God. Stop trying to appease the one who created you to make yourself acceptable before him. Stop trying to add anything to what Christ has done. Look to Christ, the hope of glory, that sure hope of eternal glory, that hope of salvation. Many first century Jews outright rejected the Messiah. It was apparent. We saw it with the Pharisees. They trusted in their pedigree as descendants of Abraham and their law-keeping efforts. Others like these Judaizers that we find in the book of Galatians that's referred to there. They said, yes, Jesus is the promised one. He is the Mashiach, but you must also be circumcised and then adhere to the Mosaic covenant. They were adding works to grace. They were rejecting faith alone in God's saving Messiah. Even some Galatians were in the process of turning to this different gospel, adding works to grace. So Paul begins this epistle with the gospel in his opening words in Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for your sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's the gospel. In Romans 3, after proclaiming the gift of God's grace through the redemption, that purchasing by his blood, which is in Christ Jesus, Paul points them to this saving Messiah who God put on display as a propitiation, as a satisfying sacrifice and appeasement in his blood through faith. And then Paul writes, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. And then Paul writes, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
You see, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. So in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul announces anathema on anyone who preaches any other gospel. He announces eternal destruction, eternal condemnation on anyone who preaches any other gospel. In Galatians 1, Paul also reveals that his apostleship and his message, this gospel of grace, did not originate from man. It was not a conspiracy invented by a small group of Jewish men. No, Paul was called to be an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And the gospel that Paul proclaimed, the good news of God's grace in Christ, came by revelation of Jesus Christ. It did not come, it did not originate from man, it came from God himself. This is the gospel of God, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans. While the gospel, Paul's, while the gospel, while the, while the message, I should say, of the gospel from Paul did not originate from the other apostles, In Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, over the last couple of weeks, we have seen that the apostles were of one mind concerning the gospel. It did not originate from the other apostles. Paul only had 15 days of contact with them. He had spent three years in Galatia, or Damascus, excuse me, and then 14 years on his missionary journey. Only 15 days had he spent with Peter. Not very much time. The gospel came by revelation of Jesus Christ. But we saw in spite of that, that when they came together at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, that Peter, James, and John gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They were, in other words, united in partnership in proclaiming the gospel of God's grace in Christ. They all had the same gospel that had originated from God himself. Again, it was God's gospel. The only difference between Peter and Paul's ministry was the people to whom it was directed to. Paul's ministry was to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, and Peter's to the circumcised, the Jew. Different target audiences But the very same gospel, the gospel of God's grace, found only in Jesus Christ. But then we sort of have a transition, beginning in verse 11. Suddenly there arose between two gospel preachers, Peter and Paul, a conflict. So if you'll look with me at Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. This is last week's water, but it's still good. I forgot to get some. (laughs) Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to shrink back and separate himself, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the gospel, about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before everyone, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Then verse 16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since the laws of, since the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Thank you, honey. It was fun. Now think about this. If the scriptures were the words of men, this would certainly not been have not been included, would it? But in God's word, we see real details of God working through imperfect men for his glory. We see men who sin who fail, men who sometimes are led astray, even in gospel practice. But here we have those details put on display for us. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter's Aramaic name, Peter is his Greek name, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Notice Paul opposed Peter right to his face, not through the rumor mill, but directly to his face. And Peter stood condemned. Peter was guilty. Now, these words are interesting in light of some teaching among the Catholics today, teaching that Peter was the first pope teaching that Peter was the rock upon which Christ would build his church. But in Matthew 16, 18, the passage that is used to defend that among the Catholics, Peter is the word Petros, meaning a small stone. But the rock upon which God would build his church is Petra, a boulder likened to a great mountain. Peter was not the first pope. The whole concept of a pope is foreign to the scriptures. And Peter was not the rock upon which Christ would build his church. The church is built on the revelation of Jesus Christ by his apostles, specifically the 12, who unveiled him as the promised Messiah, the Mashiach. That is the foundation of the church. Christ is the cornerstone with the apostles being the foundation. In Galatians 2, the apostle Paul opposed Peter to his face because Peter stood condemned. Peter's behavior here was not an issue, as we talked about before. It was not an issue of becoming all things to all men. It is true that Paul had had Timothy circumcised before sending him to the Jews. Paul even said, when I was with the Jews, I behaved like a Jew. When I was with the Gentiles, I was behaving like a Gentile. So why was Paul rebuke, rebuking Peter for doing what appeared to be the same thing? Why did Peter condemn Paul? We'll look at verse 12. For prior to coming 
Prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to shrink back and separate himself. Look at this. Fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter's behavior here was motivated not for a concern for the weak, for the weaker brother, not for the sake of the gospel, but Peter here became hypocritical because of the pressure that came from false teachers. He was fearing the party of the circumcised, the Judaizers, the false brethren, as he called them earlier. The issue was eating food that was forbidden by Jewish law. Yet Peter knew that all foods were no longer unclean, but clean. He learned this through a vision at Cornelius' house. God announced to Peter that that which had been unclean was now clean in the new covenant. And Peter, a Jew, had already begun eating with Gentile believers. But when a delegation was sent by the circumcision party, the Judaizers, the false brethren, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. What hypocrisy! This was certainly not according to the gospel of grace and the freedom that we have in Christ. We are freed from the bondage of the old covenant. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. The matter was certainly first than it, worse than it first appeared. This wasn't just the hypocrisy of Peter, but of the unbelieving Jews in general. This pra- I said that wrong. Of the believing Jews in general, this practice was so alluring that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So Paul confronts Peter for his inconsistency. While Peter enjoyed the freedom that we have in Christ, he denied that same freedom to the Gentiles. This was a gospel issue. It was the application of the gospel of grace that he failed to apply. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before everyone, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, again, this was not a situation of becoming all things to all men that we might by all means save some. This was a gospel issue. Paul said they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. In other words, they were not straightforward about the freedom that we have in the gospel. Their hypocrisy had gospel implications, really. They were implying by their hypocrisy that some law-keeping was necessary for salvation. God forbid. Look at verse 15 and 16. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, Paul writes, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we, speaking of the Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, 
since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The Jews were the old covenant people of God. They were not sinners from among the Gentiles. Paul actually writes in Romans 9, and he refers to them, the Jews, as those to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers? He's talking about the patriarchs here. And from who? From the Jews is the Christ or the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But even with all these blessings, being a physical descendant of Abraham did not mean that you would inherit the promises of God. Because Paul continues. Romans 9, 6b, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed, but through Isaac, see the son of the promise, through Isaac your seed will be named. That is, and he explains it here in verse 8, that is the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. You see, it is through faith in the promised one that we receive all the blessings of God. And that is true for the Jew or the Gentile. The church, the body of Christ is the Israel of God. It is not that the church has replaced Israel, but Gentiles through faith have been grafted in to the covenants of promise so that the promises of God are yes to all who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. It makes no difference. Paul writes in Galatians 2:16 once again, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How can a man be made right before God? How can a sinner be declared righteous? It's not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith. It's, it means a conviction, a trust, a trust that rests in the blood of this new covenant. It, it rests in God's son, in the satisfying sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. John wrote this, and he himself, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about the Messiah. First John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. It's not for the Jews only, but for those of the whole world. The Gentiles also people from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. That word propitiation, it's translated from two different words that mean virtually the same thing, halasmos and hilasterion. They both basically mean an appeasement, a satisfaction. But really, they cover two concepts. Sometimes when they're used, one concept is focused on, and sometimes it's the other. What are those two concepts? Expiation and propitiation. Expiation, listen carefully, expiation is an act of atonement or the payment of a penalty. 
He himself is the halasmas. He is the satisfaction. He is the appeasement for our sins. Propitiation is the resulting changed attitude of God towards the sinner. So biblical expiation is an atoning act that results in propitiation. Based upon Christ's act as a satisfying blood sacrifice, God's anger against us has been removed. Because Jesus shed his blood for us, we are no longer enemies of God. Because he is our mercy seat, we are now at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1. My salvation, your salvation is based exclusively and wholly upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. You cannot add anything to what Christ has done. His death is sufficient. He has totally and he has completely satisfied God's requirement for sin. And all those sacrifices of the Old Testament days, all those coverings, those sin coverings, only pointed to the real thing that would one day come. And that is in Jesus Christ. He is the one that is sufficient. He is our propitiation. He is our expiation and our propitiation. Think of it. Why would we ever try to add to what Christ has done to add circumcision or law keeping or any other man-made rule to the work of Christ is to add works to grace. It is to reject Christ's atoning sufficient sacrifice. His blood sacrifice. It is to leave one without hope. We don't want to even play games with that, as Peter seemed to be doing here. You see, Christ is enough. His pers- person and his work is sufficient. He is the satisfaction. Satis- I can't even get it out. Sorry. He is the satisfying sacrifice that brings sinners into peace with God. To where we enter into his very presence. We enter the holy of holies without judgment, without fear, without guilt, without sin. We enter wearing the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, our services here on the Lord's day are centered around the preaching of God's word. But they culminate in our communion service the Lord's table. Today we remember his death. And as we remember his death, may we remember that his blood sacrifice, his death has brought us into communion with God. We are wearing the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have not earned it. We do not discern. We do not deserve it, but it is God's gift to us. We are declared righteous before God through faith. So this is a solemn time. It's also a time of rejoicing, isn't it? That he took my place that he bore my sins, that his death was efficacious, that he totally satisfied God's demand for the payment of sin so that I am his and he is mine. We have communion with him and communion 
with one another. So if you're visiting here today and you are born from above, born again or born from above, you are welcome to participate with us. But if you're not born again, this is for believers only. Let it pass you by and contemplate what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. The unleavened bread represents the sinless body of our Lord. He was without spot or blemish or any such thing. He was broken by the wrath of God, burying our sins. He was scourged and spit upon. He wore a crown of thorns. He was beaten and whipped. His hands and feet were pierced through. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He bore sin's curse, bringing his people into the presence of God as God's dear children, all to the praise of his glorious grace. The wine represents the cleansing blood of Christ, just as wine in scripture represents both judgment and abundant blessing. So wine pictures the fact we believe that Jesus took our judgment that we might have his abundant blessing for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We have been brought into a new covenant relationship with God. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. We've been brought into the blessings of Abraham through faith. We're children of God through faith. As John declared, 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. So as we prepare for communion, as we prepare this morning to remember what Christ has done, that his body was broken and his blood was shed, we are commanded to examine ourselves that we might not partake in an unworthy manner. For when we partake in a worthy manner, we're blessed of the Lord. We believe that it's, it's, it's not a saving act, but that we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ as we continually confess our sins, repent of our sins, and remember Christ's death for us. So it's important that we not enter into communion with sin in our lives, not focused on things outside of Christ's work for us. It's to be a time of worship a time of thanksgiving, a time of praise to God, a time of remembrance, what Christ has done for us. So we want to take a few moments, examine yourself, deal with any sin, deal with any distraction, deal with your heart, lest you partake in an unworthy manner and be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Remember those in Corinth had done precisely that. And some were sick, and some had even died. It tells us the importance of communion. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.